morning. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning to hear the preaching of God's word. If you're a guest with us, this is the part of our service where we open God's word and we read it and we explain it and talk about how it applies to our lives. So I encourage you now to invite, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And you can find that on page 794 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand? Plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you now humbly, knowing that we are sinners before a holy God. And yet we also come boldly because Christ is our mediator and has given us access to your throne. And so we ask now, that you would guard us from the evil one, convict us by your spirit, and sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside of ourselves? So wrote Martin Luther after he struggled long over the question of how many good works were enough to merit heaven and God's forgiveness. Luther had it right. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we gather this morning and every Sunday to rejoice in the work of Christ and rest anew in his salvation. And yet from Luther's day until today, indeed for all of history, the great enemy of the church has stood to accuse God's people and to poison the truth. He conspires to paralyze believers with guilt. He wants our consciences condemned for disobeying the Lord. He tempts us to despair by reminding us that we are stained by sin. And therefore, the great problem for every Christian, and indeed for every person, is our guilt and our sin. Whether we recognize it or not, we all have this guilt. And we can respond to it in several ways. Will we despair over our sin and our failure? Will we rely on our own works to try to be right with God? Or will we receive a gift of grace that gives us a place to stand before our Lord? Well, we find the wonderful answer in our passage this morning. Zechariah would say to Christians, who have ongoing feelings of guilt that stop them from serving the Lord. 
you are listening to the accusation of Satan rather than the voice of God. God does not trivialize sin or say that sin does not matter. But as horrific as any sin may be, God has dealt with it in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. The greatest weapon against Satan is the assurance that the punishment for our sin has been put on Christ and his righteousness has been credited to us. Whatever accusation Satan can bring has been silenced for those who are in Christ. And that's the main point I want us to see today. The only remedy to real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. The only remedy to real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. And if you don't know what imputation means, you will, Lord willing, shortly. And I want us to look at this passage in three scenes. The setting, the symbol, and the servant. So first, the setting. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So we have three figures in this heavenly courtroom. You got Joshua, the high priest, standing as the defendant on trial, the angel of the Lord presiding as the judge, and Satan acting as the prosecutor. Now, this Joshua is not the Joshua that fought the battle of Jericho. That Joshua lived in the early 14th century BC. This is after Israel's return from the exile in 519 BC. And this Joshua is the high priest leading God's people in restoring the temple along with Zerubbabel, whom we'll meet in chapter 4. Now Joshua has urged the people, they frustrated their efforts, and rose up to oppose the work. And they discouraged the people, they frustrated their efforts, they even wrote an accusation against them, and so that the people stopped building for 15 years. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. And it seemed like the work was over. But then God raised up the prophets, Zechariah, and the prophet Haggai. And they preached God's word to his people. They supported the leaders. And Joshua and Zerubbabel led the people to start rebuilding the temple once again. But now we see the adversary comes. And he brings his own accusations to discourage Joshua in his work. Satan is not really a name. It's actually a title that means the adversary or the accuser. The accuser is his name. Accusation is his game. This is who he's been. This is what he's done ever since he rebelled against the Lord in heaven. Now, regrettably, popular culture tends to trivialize this enemy. Often he's depicted as a character with horns and a tail. Sometimes the media portrays him as one who is easily Bible. However, this is not how we find Satan depicted in the Bible. Revelation 12 says he's that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God. It's just this picture of relentless accusation. Satan is crafty. To the innocent, he tempts them to sin. That's what he did with the first Adam, who failed, and with the last Adam, who succeeded. To the guilty, he accuses them of sin. So Satan will try to get us to sin, and then when we sin, he heaps accusations against us. And this shows the deceitfulness of his schemes. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's a true adversary of God's people. Satan is also strategic. He's not omnipresent. And so he sets his sights on key people. He deceived Eve in an effort to destroy Adam. He ravaged Job. He incited David. He demanded to have Peter. He tormented Paul. He tempted Christ. And here he goes after Joshua, the high priest. Now Joshua represents God's people. If Joshua is acceptable before the Lord, then the people are also acceptable before the Lord. But if Joshua is guilty, the whole community is guilty. If the priest stands condemned, then the people he represents stand 
condemned. Now, does Satan have a case? Well, verse 3 says that he does. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The word filthy here means something like excrement or vomit. It's a disgusting picture. What disqualifies Joshua is not his clothes, but what those clothes represent, which is his sin. Joshua is a filthy, dirty, and guilty sinner. All his righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I wonder if you see yourself this way. We are prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it. But the more we study and ponder God's perfect holiness, his radiant purity, his abhorrence of sin, and his frightful wrath against it, the more we will realize sin's heinousness. This is a word from the Lord revealing our true condition. In ourselves, we are stained by sin. We're, we're covered in it. And our sin should make us sick. Christ is never loved until our sin is loathed. Heaven is never longed for until our sin is loathed. Oh, that our consciences would be aggravated by our sin and our guilt. That we would cry out, how long? When can I put off these filthy garments of sin and have the pure vestments of Christ clothed around my back and the crown of glory set upon my head? Do you see your sin this way? So we can imagine what Satan's accusations would be. Look at this man. See his sin. How unrighteous. How unworthy. How unclean. How unfit. The case is clear. Joshua is guilty. Joshua stands condemned. And Satan is ready to go to work. Again, we're not told what his accusations would have been. But let's use our imagination for a moment to think about how he would proceed if he were to speak. He would accuse Joshua of the greatness and the vileness of his sins. What? Do you think you will ever obtain mercy that has sinned with so high a hand against the Lord? That has slighted the offers of his grace? That has grieved the spirit of grace? that has despised the word of grace, that has trampled under feet the blood of the covenant by which you might have been pardoned, cleansed, justified, and saved, that has spoken and done all the evil that you have? No, no, says Satan. God has mercy for others, but not for you. Pardon for others, but not for you. Righteousness for others, but not for you. Therefore, it is in vain for you to think of believing in or resting your guilty soul upon the promised Messiah. As you would accuse Joshua of his unworthiness. Ah, as you are worthy of the greatest misery, so you are unworthy of the least crumb of God's mercy. Do you think that the Lord will own, receive, or embrace such an unworthy wretch as you are? No, no. If there were any worthiness in you, then indeed the Lord might be willing to be entertained by you. But you are unworthy to entertain the Lord into your house. How much more unworthy are you to entertain him into your heart? And then, after leveling Joshua with accusations, Satan would keep his soul in a sad, doubting, and questioning condition. He would cause him to pour over and muse upon his sin, to mind his sins more than the promised Savior. Indeed, so to mind his sins as to forget and neglect the Savior altogether. You see, Satan wants our eyes so fixed on our sin, so fixed upon our disease, that we cannot see the remedy. Our minds so fixed upon our debts, that we have neither mind nor heart to think of our surety. Friends, the greatest problem we face is not actually Satan. It's our own sin. What disqualified Joshua disqualifies us. We have no basis for standing in God's presence. We all stand condemned. We're all unworthy and unfit for heaven. Do you feel the weight of your condition? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't think 
that one day you will stand before the Lord who will judge you and you have to give an account for your life. But the scripture is clear. We all have a divine judge. All of us stand before the bench with a record of wrongs and a history of treason against our creator. And we can do nothing to make a case for ourselves. We have no defense. Well, what then can be done for us? God himself must advocate for us. Left to ourselves, we're no match for the devil. However, this is not true of the Lord God Almighty. No matter how strong the devil may be, he is still only a creature made by God. Christianity does not teach a dualism where God and the devil are equal in power and strength. No, the devil is subservient to the will of our Father in heaven. And here, the Lord shuts him up before he even says a word. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Immediately the Lord rebukes Satan, not once, but twice. It's as though the Lord says, you're out of order, Satan. Shut your mouth. The judge of all the earth speaks in our defense. The only one who can condemn us rebukes the devil's prosecutions against us. The Lord won't hear another word about it. He silences the prosecutor. Satan won't be speaking in this courtroom. And the Lord gives two reasons why Satan must hush. First, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord defends his people because he's chosen them. He chose Israel, knowing full well that Israel was unrighteous. And yet he chose them, and he set his favor upon them. Spurgeon said, Satan tells me I am unworthy, yet I always was unworthy, and yet God has long loved me. Second, Joshua has been plucked from the fire. There's an allusion here to Amos 4, verse 11. The prophet there says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. But unlike their fathers, Joshua and the new generation, they had returned to God. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 1. They repented of their sins. The fire of the exile had brought forth the fruit of repentance. And the, the fact that the Lord states this as a rhetorical question suggests this fact should have been plain evidence to Satan. You've got evidence of his sin, Satan, but I've got evidence of his repentance. So the word plucked is a passive participle. This salvation was a gift of God. Joshua did not pluck himself out of the fire. No, he was plucked by the Lord. His salvation is by grace alone. So God chose him. God plucked him from the fire of his judgment. He was a burning stick about to be consumed, and God mercifully snatched him away. Well, church, we have also been snatched away from the fire of God's judgment, namely eternal hell. And why did he save us? It's not because of our righteousness. We deserved hell. No, it's because of his gracious choice. God chose us to be saved. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, not to damn us to hell, but to save us for our everlasting enjoyment of him. And it's on this ground, this ground of his own choosing, that he rules any charge against us as out of order. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I want to draw out four applications from this first point for our lives. Four C's. First, confess your sins often and repent of them. Confess your sins often and repent of them. In confession, we agree with God about our sin. 
Confession is self-accusing, but for the purpose of cleansing, not condemnation. Our confession, right, it doesn't cleanse us. Only the work of God can do that. But in confession, we come clean about our sin. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We think we're wearing clean clothes, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thomas Watson counsels, by this self-accusing, we prevent Satan's accusing. In our confessions, we tax ourselves with pride, infidelity, passion, so that when Satan shall lay these things to our charge, God will say, they have accused themselves already. Therefore, Satan, you are non-suited. Your accusations come too late. Come, confess your sins often and repent of them. Second, come to Christ for continual assurance. Brothers and sisters, have you slipped into thinking that you're not good enough to be forgiven? Are you crushed with despair because you just feel defeated by besetting sin? Your conscience may be weighed down by real guilt, in which part of the remedy is real repentance. You must confess your sins and turn from them and ask the Lord for forgiveness. But perhaps you've allowed the accuser to beat you down by forgetting God's grace. And if so, remember 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ's grace is mightier than our guilt. Third, cease all pretending and defending. We don't have to pretend we are righteous in ourselves. We know we are guilty. The ultimate verdict is the cross itself. It was our sins that nailed him there. So we can stop pretending like we are without sin. But we don't also have to defend ourselves against loving confrontation. How often do we activate our inner lawyer when confronted with our sin? When a friend or a spouse or a pastor observes sin in you and lovingly confronts you with it, do you get defensive? Do you become your own attorney, refuting the faithful wounds of a friend and just dismissing them as out of order while all the while establishing your own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we can be free of that. We can be free of that. I'm not suggesting that every confrontation we receive from others is true and loving, right? Sometimes people join Satan in his work of accusing. I am saying that in everything, the Lord is our one and sure defense. And fourth, cherish the intercession of Christ for you. Romans 8.34 says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God, at that place of power and rule, and he bends all of his might and all of his clout to intercede for us. All of that authority and power is working on our behalf to pray for his people, to plead our case before the Father. The accuser cannot lift a charge against us when we have such an advocate. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede above. For me, as Wesley captured it in that hymn we sang earlier, he ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Well, that brings us to scene two, the symbol. So God has rebuked Satan, but Joshua still remains a filthy sinner. So, has the Lord declared Joshua righteous when he is, in fact, unrighteous? 
Has this court proceeding been an obstruction of justice? I mean, what kind of judge is this? Well, the Lord's solution is not to deny Joshua's sin, but to deal with it. And any trace of truth in Satan's accusations will be done away with once and for all. And this resolution involves a cleansing, a clothing. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. So the angel of the Lord directs these other angels, hey, you guys are going to... And the language here reminds us of what Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel. The Lord has taken away your sin. This, this removal of the dirty clothing symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. Joshua is forgiven of all wrongdoing. He's cleansed of all unrighteousness. He's no longer guilty in God's court, but he stands fully acquitted. Any record of wrongs has been wiped clean from his judicial transcript. It is just as if he has never sinned. Now I ask you, what did Joshua do to become clean? What did he do to become clean? Nothing. He didn't do anything. The cleansing was initiated and completed by God alone. Friends, this is no self-help effort. (laughs) This is not clean yourself up to get right with God. This is not human merit. The Lord cleans him up. It's God's grace. God alone grants the forgiveness of sins. Friends, we cannot forgive ourselves. No matter how much popular spirituality wants to say we can. How often do people say, you just need to forgive yourself? No, you can't do that. This idea that for someone to truly deal with the guilt of their past, that they must forgive themselves, is completely foreign to the biblical truth. We can forgive others. We can ask for forgiveness from the Lord. But we cannot forgive ourselves. Forgiveness can only be granted by the offended party. We cannot remove our sins. Only God can forgive us. Only God can wash away our guilty stains. I love what Matthew Henry said. Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments, yet did not put him away, but put them away. Thus God, by his grace, does with those whom he chooses to be priests to himself. He parts between them and their sins, and so prevents their sins parting between them and their God. He reconciles himself to the sinner, but not to the sin. And this is our only hope in this life. We are deserving in and of ourselves, but because the Lord Jesus is. And this is our only hope in this life and in the next. So that's the cleansing. But consider also the clothing. Verse, verse 4 shows the removal of the dirty clothes, but it also shows the addition of some clean ones. So look at the end of verse 4. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, this is Zechariah interjecting now, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now why does Joshua need new clothes? Is it not enough that he's been forgiven of all of his sins? Is it not enough that those filthy garments are removed and he now stands completely innocent in God's sight? Why does he need new robes? Please get this. This is all important. It is not enough for us to be stripped of our sin and remain naked before God. We might be innocent. We would have no right to doing, but we would not be righteous in the positive sense. We would have no righteousness by which we would be um, accepted in God's sight. A neutral nakedness will not suffice. Otherwise, we'd still cry out with the hymn that we sang earlier, right? Naked, come to thee for dress. Forgiveness of sins is, is part of our right standing with God, but it is only part. We need something more. We need what Augustus Top Lady called the double cure. We need to be clothed with the righteousness of another. We need what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of us. 
because Joshua's clothes and ours are dirty. But the Lord gave him the clean robes of another. Now, not only is it just as if he has never sinned, but it's also just as if he has always obeyed. And so the righteousness by which God declares us righteous is not an inherent righteousness. It does not originate within ourselves. No, it is an imputed righteousness. It is given to us by the orders of the judge as a gift. Now we can sing, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, our Roman Catholic friends call this a legal fiction. To say that we are just when we're really not is a blemish on the character of God. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If this were fake, if this were a legal fiction, God would be an unjust judge. He'd be a liar and worse than Satan, who at least is telling the truth here about our guilt. And if this is so, then we ought to impeach God. Throw him off the bench of the universe for this injustice, for this lie. Never let him back into heavenly courtroom for this egregious breach of justice. Now, if this were all an illusion, a judicial sleight of hand, and Joshua truly remained clothed, right, and guilty, then Rome would be right. But friends, the point of the gospel is that the imputation is real. That God really laid our sins on Christ. That he really credits the righteousness of Christ to our account. And I really receive that by faith alone. It's not a sham. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have in Joshua a symbol of that wonderful doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are declared righteous in the sight of Christ by means of the cloak of the righteousness of Christ. Because without his righteousness, all we have to offer God are filthy rags. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we enjoy freedom from any accusation of Satan because we have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. We don't have to earn our righteousness because Christ is our pardon and our perfection. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thomas Gill captured the wonder of this double exchange. Our load of sin and misery, didst thou the sinless bear? Thy spotless robe of purity do we, the sinners, wear. How can an unjust person be justified? How can a dirty rebel be declared righteous? The only remedy to real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. I rest solely in Christ's righteousness and in his atonement because I know there is nothing I can do to make up for my own iniquity. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In verse 5, Zechariah, watching this scene unfold, interjects with a command of his own. Let them put of the priestly garb. The turban was a headdress that formed part of the priestly garb in Exodus 28. And it signifies Joshua's reinstatement to his priestly office. This is literally the crowning moment of the whole ceremony. Joshua's reclothed in pure festival, festival garments in the presence of the angel of the Lord, a symbol of God's acceptance of him and of the people that he represented. And now consider the charge. Having been cleansed, having been clothed, he receives a charge from the angel. Verse 6. 
And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. That first condition, walk in my ways, is to live life as God intends. Walk is a, is a biblical metaphor for an obedient lifestyle. Second condition, keep my charge, means to align one's conduct with God's commands. So, so together, he's calling Joshua and the people he represents to covenant faithfulness. This third phrase, then you shall rule my house, is referring to the temple. So in the absence of the king, the, the priest played an important role in the covenant community. And that fourth phrase, have charge of my courts, is, is a parallel of sorts. So together, these conditions, or these phrases, convey the priestly duties that were required of Joshua. So he's charged, walk in obedience, fulfill your role as high priest. And then he's given assurance that if he does so, he'll receive the right of access among the host of heaven. He'll, he'll walk in God's presence. This is the Lord keeping his promise. Return to me, and I will return to you. Well, church, we too have been charged to walk worthy of the gospel, to walk as children of light, to walk by the Spirit. We're to love God and keep his commandments. And the reward for our faithful covenant keeping is the presence of God. Not only in this life, but most fully in the life to come. We will be with the Lord and we shall see him as he is. Now note the sequence here. This is, this is so important. First, Joshua is cleansed. Then he is clothed. Then he is charged. This order matters. In a covenant relationship with God, there are commands to be obeyed. There are obligations to be fulfilled, but these are always surrounded and supported by God's gracious acts and his mighty promises. In other words, this is, this is grace-motivated obedience. This is not legalism. Right? Joshua doesn't have to earn right standing with God by keeping the commands. Nor is this lawlessness, because obedience really is required of him. No, this is true liberty. God not only cleanses and clothes us, but he also commissions us to obey him for our own joy. He not only saves us, but he gives us a place of service. Now, our fitness for service is grounded not in our own works, but in God's free gift of grace. But the salvation always results in service. And that brings us to our final scene, the servant. Joshua has been justified. He's been restored as the high priest. God is pouring out his blessings on his people. And yet as great as these blessings are, there remains a greater salvation to come. In verses 8 through 10, we see Joshua and his fellow priests symbolize the coming servant. And I want us to see three attributes of this servant. First, his identity. Who is this person? Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Earlier we read Isaiah 53. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the prophets proclaim, this, this coming servant is going to provide the double cure. He's going to give us the forgiveness of sins, and he's going to make many to be counted righteous. And he's going to take on the role of a priest. Right? He presents himself as an offering for sin. He bears their iniquities. He makes intercession for the transgressors. So the coming suffering servant will be a priest, like Joshua. Now note that second word, the branch. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that a righteous king called the branch would come from David's family. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely 
and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God promised David he would never lack a man to sit on his throne. But one of his sons would occupy it forever. And now we see that that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is also the righteous Davidic king of Jeremiah 23. And what is more, he will be called by the name the Lord. Somehow, some way, this man will not only be a son of David, he will relation. We know this suffering servant and righteous king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant who was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He is the righteous branch who makes many to be accounted righteous. He is the high priest who was faithful in all God's house as a son. And this leads to the second attribute of the servant, his iniquity removing work. Look at verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What's significant here is not the stone, but the promise inscribed on it. No longer would daily sacrifices be offered for the forgiveness of sins. No longer would the high priest have to come in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people. Instead, there would come a single day when God would remove the iniquity of the land in full. There would come a greater day of atonement, Good Friday, when the true great high priest would make atonement for his people through his death on the cross. This would be the day when the promised king would disarm Satan in his accusations because he would put him to open shame by triumphing over him. This would be the day when he would remove the guilty stains of his people. He would cancel the record of debt that stood against them. He would clothe them in the righteousness divine. He would grant them access to the presence of God and he would open for them the way to paradise. This day would be the greatest day God's people or the world had ever seen. And beloved, that day has come. Jesus Christ accomplished the promised redemption. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Why is it good news that our sins are forgiven and we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ? It's because now all the obstacles that stood in our way to be felt, reconciled to God have been put away and we are restored back to the Father. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we've seen the servant's identity in his iniquity removing work. Now, look at the servants inviting people. Verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The prophets look back to past glories when they want to describe future glories. They start with the known and then they move to the unknown. This phrase here refers to the reign of Solomon in 1 Kings 4. When Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, peace on all sides around him, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. These were the good old days. But this new era will not simply be a reversion to the past. This picture is one of perfect peace, abundant life that will never be taken away. Jesus is going to bring about a new creation and everyone in the new community will do the work of an evangelist. No exceptions. 
the blessings of living under King Jesus are going to be too good to not share with the neighbors. Church, this is our charter. We also live in a time of expectation. We still eagerly await a new heavens and a new earth with life under King Jesus in full effect. We've not yet reached paradise. And until then, we get to invite people to come under the blessed rule of King Jesus. As those who have been snatched from the fire, so we must also snatch others from the fire. But we don't just warn people out of hell. We woo them into paradise. Are you inviting people to Jesus? This good news is meant to be shared. Ironically, this is an area where Satan loves to accuse us, isn't it? To make us feel guilty about our lack of evangelism. Well, don't let them. But don't confuse the conviction of the Spirit for the condemnation of Satan. When we sin, both the devil and the Holy Spirit come to us. The devil accuses us in order to paralyze us. The Spirit convicts us and he brings grace to restore us and renew us again. Remember, Satan is silenced so that we may speak boldly of the Savior. Invite your neighbor to come to Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. For some of you here this morning, maybe this is the first time you've heard this message. Perhaps you feel incurable, that there's no hope for you. You're too bad and too broken for God to heal and restore. But friend, there is no sinner too dirty that Christ cannot clean. Turn away from your sin. Stop trusting in your own works. Be free from condemnation and the accusations of the devil. And trust in Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, our justification, our right standing before works. If you're by works, the question is, whose works? If you're not trusting in Christ this morning, I invite you, I, I beg you, exchange your filthy rags for the perfect righteousness of Christ. Don't put it off. Today, you can be forgiven of all your sins and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. God doesn't need your best and your works need not speak for you because Christ's work speaks a better word. If you receive him now, you'll have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You'll be a secure person the wrath of God will never reach you. The justice of God will not condemn you. But the grace of God will defend you. The mercy of God will restore you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will become a righteous child of God. There is nothing more important in the world. In 1510, Martin Luther was sent to Rome where he climbed the holy stairs. Suppose fables, the stairs had been Jesus ascended before he appeared to Pilate. And according to fables, the stairs had been moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And the priests claimed that, though, that God forgave sins for those who climbed the stairs on their knees. And so Luther did so, repeating the Lord's Prayer and kissing each step as he went up seeking peace with God. But when he reached the top, he looked back and he said, who knows whether this is true? Well, Luther eventually learned it's not true. It's not good news. This is the good news. Jesus lived a righteous life. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven as the Lord of all to be the advocate of his people. And so now, I despair of my own righteousness. I trust in Christ and Christ alone. And the very instant I do that, all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has is mine. 
And for the rest of my days, he has me covered. The Father looks beyond all my filthy garments and all my sin, and he sees the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus. And for that reason, I am declared righteous, not for today, not for this week, not until I commit another sin, but for eternity. Is there any better news in all the world than that? At the front door of the church, the enemy stands to accuse you as you enter and whisper in your ears, you've got to make sure that you're righteous. Your merits count. It's got to be an inherent righteousness. When you hear the words of the accuser, tell him the words of this passage. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen me rebuke you. Tell him the Lord joining you there. He saved me from hell and I will not be joining you there. I stand before him clothed with the righteousness of Christ and all my sins are under his blood. Even now my Savior stands before the Father pleading his blood for me by his one final and perfect sacrifice. I have been put forever beyond the power of your accusations and of God's own wrath against me. Forever. That's what you tell him. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is true. The only remedy to real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. We have sinned against you much, but your son is our righteousness and our redemption. He undertook to answer for our sins, and we know that you are fully satisfied with the work of your son. And it's our prayer that when he comes with trumpet sound, may we then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. May that be true for everyone today. May we trust in Jesus now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.